welcome all of you to CSIS uh, for our panel today on the Ukrainian elections. Um, I'm sure you're all aware Ukraine's been in the news quite a bit the last week. Uh, we planned this panel well before uh, those developments occurred um, because we thought that the elections would be um, an important moment in determining Ukraine's future political course and the nature of its relationship with its neighbors and the West. Uh, and I think that realization has only grown in light of developments over the last week or so. Uh, the focus of the discussion is going to be on the elections and on Ukrainian politics. I'm sure all of our speakers have their thoughts on the crisis around the Sea of Azov, and I'm sure we can get into that as well in the Q&A. Um, but we really wanted to, to do this panel uh, to talk about Ukraine's political evolution and the prospects for the election. Um, we have three really good uh, panelists and Ukraine watchers here. Um, in the order uh, that they're seated, we have Taras Kuzio, uh, who is a Toronto-based international expert on contemporary Ukraine and post-communist politics, although he tells me he's no longer based in Toronto, um, and has been a political consultant to governments and legal business. Fake news. Yeah, fake news, yeah. Um, how do you say that in Canadian? <laughs> um, he's been a consultant in the private sector on uh, legal and economic issues and is the author of Ukraine, Democratization, Corruption, and the New Russian Imperialism. Uh, next, we have Melinda Herring, who is the editor of the Ukraine Alert blog at the Atlantic Council, uh, the most popular publication at the Atlantic Council. Um, Melinda is a longtime observer of the region who has written for a wide range of publications uh, and is the author of the report Reforming the Democracy Bureaucracy, uh, co-author of Ukraine's Internally Displaced Persons, hold a key, there's a word missing there. Um, a work about Ukraine's internally displaced persons uh, and various others. She's also worked at the Eurasia Foundation, Freedom House, and NDI, uh, and has worked uh, on other countries in the region in addition to Ukraine. Uh, and to my far left, and again, that's a locational, not a political comment, uh, is Keith Darden, who's an associate professor in the School of International Service at American University. Uh, he's a specialist in comparative politics, international relations, and Eurasia. Uh, he has a book coming out with Cambridge University called Resisting Occupation in Eurasia, which looks at the development of durable national loyalties, uh, the role of education, uh, and how they explain voting patterns, secession, resistance, uh, and other large political phenomena. Um, we're going to have each uh, speaker present for about 15 minutes, and then we will open up the floor to discussion. Um, we are on the record. This is being recorded. Um, so if there are, oh, and please silence your cell phones and other noise-making devices. Um, with that, I will turn the floor over to Taras. Um, there. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll start talking about um, the, the way political forces in Ukraine have supported, supported or not supported reforms since 2014, and then take it a little bit wider bringing in the, the Russian question, the war, and Russian soft power, because I don't think these things can be uh, separated. Um, as you'll see from this, um, this uh, slide, um, it gives you an indication of uh, who are the political forces that have voted the most for reform since 2014 in the Ukrainian parliament. These are figures taken from Vox Ukraine. And if you look on the left-hand side here, um, the first five factions are the ones which are usually termed pro-Western, pro-European. Then you have two oligarch factions and then the former party region's opposition bloc. Um, so for me, what's interesting is the first five. Um, what it shows is that um, the, uh, 
the, the votes would not have gone through if it hadn't been for two key factions, Petro Poroshenko, the, the current president, and the former Prime Minister Yatsenyuk's Popular Front. They provided the bulk of the votes with, on occasion, the Radical Party, or on occasion, Samuel Pomic, Samuel Pomic, Self-Reliance, the party of Lviv Mayor Andrei Sadovey. And this is also reflected in the next, on the right-hand side, the, the way the faction leaders in the Ukrainian parliament have voted as well. You'll notice here that in fifth and sixth place, Yulia Tymoshenko is at the bottom of the, um, of the, of the pro-Western factions. So, um, and this is a reflection of her, real, of, the, of her faction's antagonism towards most of the IMF mandated reforms in Ukraine. Um, is that? Uh, I don't know. Um, okay. Um, the kind of reforms which have happened since 2014. The thing for me, what is interesting, is that it's a very different period of time uh, compared to the period after the Orange Revolution, when really there was very little done and was five years of wasted time and squabbling between Yushchenko and Timoshenko. This is not the case today. If so, if under Yushchenko the glass was empty or stolen. Um, today, the glass is either half full or half empty, you could argue. You could debate this out. And certainly, much has been done. You could say some things haven't been done as well. Um, some things which are still opposed by some of the pro-Western forces, like land privatization, for example. Timoshenko is very adamantly opposed to that. But also, one of the, one of the, one of the kind of um, stereotypes about Ukraine is that nothing's been done about oligarchs. Again, I think that's uh, quite untrue. Through a whole host of reasons, the influence of oligarchs have gone down, including because of Russian occupation of, of Donbass and Crimea. Um, but also, um, that second from the bottom point, the two most popular TV channels in Ukraine, owned by Kolomoisky and the gas lobby, are both anti-Poroshenko. But what's key is that... Um, um, have I moved it? No. Still can't work out. Yeah. Okay. No, it's not working. That worked. Okay. Okay. So the kind of um, key area of fighting corruption. Um, again, the stereotype is that nothing much has been done on this. I think if we divide this area of fighting corruption into three things. Um, institutions created to fight corruption, areas that previously were sources of corruption that have been closed down, and then putting people in jail. Everybody tends to focus on the last of the three, not on the first two. Um, so if I, what I've done is looked at, um, on the left-hand side, I think a lot has been done in uh, closing most of the areas, um, the bulk of the areas where, where corruption used to take place, uh, and the classic case, the classic cash cow for presidents was the state gas, gas company Nafta has Ukraini, which is no longer subsidized and is now the biggest taxpayer to the Ukrainian government. New institutions. What hasn't been done is on the right hand side, and the key area there is the anti corruption court, which was just created this summer and will become operational next year. So any president who's elected next year. Has, no longer has the excuse, we have a corrupt ju judiciary, we can't put elites in jail. Because the anti-corruption court will be, it is, has been created for that purpose uh, in time. Who's standing? Um, I've kind of again divided it into, into the, the names. Most of these, or all of them, are practically 
well-known names. There's nothing really much new here. There's no real new, new faces, at least of the declared candidates at the moment. We'll see if anybody else comes up the next month or two. Uh, Poroshenko, um, I call Anatoly Gritsenko the strongman. He supports a return to a presidential system, uh, quite authoritarian, autocratic, I would say. And then a whole range of populists who are playing on anti-IMF feeling and particularly anti-war populism. Um, you'll notice as you drive from Kiev airport, as you probably did recently, to the center of Kiev, billboards all proclaiming, I will be the one that will solve the war. I'll bring peace to Ukraine. They don't say how, of course, um, and, um, and then other areas such as Timoshenko's billboard, famous billboard, um, I will reduce the price of gas by two times. Again, she doesn't explain how. And the pro-Russians at the end, what's interesting is that the pro-Russian camp is now has at least three or four candidates. They're not united in one machine as they were with the party of uh, regions. Pro-Russian political forces, um, what's key here is that um, Russian military aggression against Ukraine is actually preventing the possibility of pro-Russian forces returning to power. 16% of Ukrainian voters, 27 election districts are under Russian occupation, Crimea and Donbass. Um, that means that um, they not only can't come to power, they're unlikely to be able to even get into the second round of presidential elections. So my prediction would be that, for example, the most popular of these pro-Russian candidates, Yuri Boyko, would come fourth or fifth place um, in, in, in next year's elections. And Paul Danieri, a colleague of mine, who I've just finished a book with, um, has a very good article, academic article, studying this, and he sees it as a decisive shift in Ukrainian politics. Um, if, if the same um, situation existed in 2010 with those voters outside Ukraine's election system, Timoshenko would have won by 10% in 2010. She lost by 3%. So this is an important big chunk of electorate who voted for Yanukovych, who voted for the Party of Regions and Communists, who can no longer vote in Ukraine's elections. So that takes us, takes us to Russian soft power. Uh, Russian soft power, uh, which is in terminal decline, if not um, practically on its way out, for a whole host of reasons. Not only because Russian, pro-Russian political forces can no longer really have much influence in the Ukrainian parliament. Um, if in the parliament up till 2014, the party of regions had nearly, nearly 200 seats with the communists, um, today they have 38. And they just split a month ago again. So it's a very different situation. Russian social media has been banned, Russian TV. Um, the, what we have is a growth in popularity of Ukraine. Language TV, Kolomoisky's one plus one channel, is now the most popular TV channel. It used to be Inter, which was more Russian speaking. Um, we've also had the two, two last key factors, I think, are decisive on Russian soft power. Decommunization, four laws adopted in 2003 and 15, have um, done an, um, a lot of work in the old area of monuments, renaming of towns, streets, villages, and um, removal of Soviet, shall we say, influence, which is already on the back of over three decades of what I, what I would call de-Stalinization in Ukraine, um, with the growth of, of, of interest and support for commemorating the Ukrainian famine of 1933, the Holodomor. Today, 80% of Ukrainians believe the Holodomor is a genocide, including in eastern southern Ukraine. And the final point there is the whole 
earthquake, as I described it in the blog for the, for the Atlantic Council of Ukraine autocephaly. This is um, so an explosive an issue in Mos Moscow that Russia um, held an emergency meeting of the Russian Security Council and then another emergency meeting of the Russian Orthodox Church in Minsk. Um, the the, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian parishes account for a third of the parishes of the Russian Orthodox Church. Plus there are key religious buildings in Ukraine, but more importantly, uh, and this is, I think very important for Russian identity, because Russian nationalists are in power in Moscow, including Vladimir Putin, um, for them, Ukraine is Russian. Uh, Putin has repeatedly said that the Russian nation, the Russian people began in Kiev. Um, so this is also uh, has a tremendous impact on Russian national identity. And Russian-speaking identity as well is now very much in the, in the process of flux. Um, the whole concept of brotherly peoples, which was inculcated in Eastern Ukraines in particular um, for decades, is now over, at least on the part of Ukrainians. Um, brotherly peoples do not steal their territory and do not invade them. So I have, there's a whole huge amount of opinion polling data to show that. One that came out today by rating agency, sociological agency in Kiev showed that um, majority of Ukrainians now look upon Russia in a negative way, which they don't do of any other uh, country. Um, the Azov crisis just happened a week ago, we mentioned. Um, what are the reasons for that? Um, de facto, I think Ukraine and Russia are in a state of war, de jure not, for all sorts of reasons. Um, at least that's the view of various legal experts I've read and the Ukrainian foreign minister. This new depiction of Russian military aggression was already there in the new law adopted in January of this year, uh, transforming the way the war was described from an ATO, anti-terrorist operation, to Russian uh, temporary occupation of the Donbass. And I'll just nearly finish now. Um, this is a great example of, the, of showing you the impact of the war on um, Russian speakers of Ukraine. The, um, it shows the, 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 the number of casualties of Ukrainian security forces by Ukrainian region. And you'll notice how many of them are in eastern southern Ukraine. Dnipropetrovsk, the, the region now called Dnipro, bordering Donbass, has the highest by far of, of these casualties. So the irony is, is that Russian intervention to allegedly protect or defend Russian speakers has actually killed more Russian speakers than Ukrainian speakers and has created a huge number of Russian-speaking IDPs in Ukraine and refugees in Russia. So again, that inevitably impacts upon um, how Russia is perceived and how um, Russian soft power is viewed. Today, three quarters of Ukrainians view Vladimir Putin in a negative way, including the Russian State Duma, the Russian government, and do not believe that peace will come to Ukraine until Vladimir Putin is no longer Russian leader. They'll have a long time to wait. Uh, conclusion, I'll just finish on this. Um, so we have um, an election which, where I think you have uh, Poroshenko uh, campaigning on very patriotic issues. Um, I built an army, I, I gave you autocephaly and such like. I'm taking Ukraine out of the Russian orbit. Um, and um, backed probably by former Prime Minister Yatsenyuk's political force. Um, they, the competitors to that will be mainly pro-Western 
political forces, Gritsenko, Timoshenko, Lesliachko. Pro-Russian candidates and political parties later in the year in the parliamentary elections will not really have much ability to win win many votes for, all, for the whole, not only because they're divided, but because they just don't have the voters anymore. Um, uh, to me, the third point is important here. The biggest danger, and again, uh, something I wrote for the Atlantic Council, I think the biggest, biggest danger here is a return to not pro-Russians to win, but the biggest danger is a return to Yushchenko-era instability. Because Ukraine is a parliamentary system, and presidential candidates seem to act as though they are running in a presidential system. You can promise anything you want as a presidential candidate, but if you don't have the political forces in parliament to implement that, to create a coalition, to create a government, you will not be able to do much of the promises that you are claiming to support. So, and, and that's true of most of the candidates standing, like Gritsenko, for example, do not have strong political forces. That means they will not have strong parliamentary representations. Even Timoshenko, she now has 20 MPs. That could increase to 40, 50, but you'll never have a majority, I don't think, in the... Russian soft power. I think why is this election key? Um, but we say that every time with the Ukrainian election. Um, because if, um, if the similar type of uh, political constituency is elected as in 2014, by 2024, Ukraine will be completely out of the Russian orbit. Um, the, uh, I just don't see how that will change um, for a whole, for many of the reasons I said here, and also because um, for, it, I just don't see how Russia could press the reverse button on the VCR, as it were, and go back to the situation of pre-2014. After bloodshed, conflict, uh, war, um, countries change. We know that throughout history, and, and that's true in this particular case. Um, and so um, I, I think that um, what we have seen in the last four or five years is likely to continue, I just, even if Poroshenko is defeated in next year's elections. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Can you show me how to watch? Uh, it's this one here. Good afternoon. Thank you. I don't think I'm, my mic is on. Can you turn me on? Am I on? Okay, great. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Jeff, for the opportunity to be here. My favorite two subjects are elections and Ukraine, so I can't imagine a better panel. Um, I run the Ukraine Alert blog at the Atlantic Council, and I am sprinting back and forth between Washington and Kiev frequently uh, and just got back, and what Taras says is true. It is election season in Kiev, even if it's not officially election season. There's manic energy. There's billboards everywhere. All you do is have 18 cups of coffee, and everyone's jockeying and talking about uh, which group is going to work with another group. So it's really an exciting time uh, to be talking about uh, the race that's coming up. I, I agree with Taras that this is a very important election. Uh, I see it slightly differently. There's a, a shelf life on, on these sort of democratic revolutions. And I think we're nearing the end of the shelf life for the reform period. Uh, if Ukraine does not consolidate the gains that it's made in the last five years, mm -hmm. then I think we're going to go back to old Ukraine. I think there's still a chance for the momentum uh, of, the, of the revolution to carry on. Uh, but they've got to act now. Uh, my, my pointer is screwed up. Thank you. Okay, so... 
Uh, everyone's seen the polls. I'm not going to dwell on them. But there's one important tension uh, that I think is worth mentioning at the outset. If you look at the polls, Ukrainians hate everyone. They say we want new faces. <laughs> we hate these people. Just give us someone new. All these people are dinosaurs. But if you dig in and you look at the polling, the old faces are actually the popular ones. So there's a tension between these things. They say we hate, we hate their guts, but we're going to vote for them. So Ukrainian voters are pragmatic. That, that's the, the thing to keep in mind. Now, there's a large percentage of Ukrainians who are still undecided. So that's another factor to keep in mind. Everything is decided at the last minute in this game. Okay, so uh, my big question, the question I've been working on for the last year and a half is, will Ukraine's Maidan opposition unify? And I wish I could say yes. Right now, it doesn't look likely. Can my pointer go forward, please? Thank you. Okay, so let's look at the old Maidan opposition forces. On the left, we have the mayor of Lviv, uh, Sadovi, who's the head of uh, Samopomich or Self-Reliance. And for many years, for the last five years, in the West, he's been considered to be the most reform-minded. Uh, he recently merged with Dem Alliance, who's Gatsko on the left. Uh, and uh, Sadovi has said he's going to run. The problem is his ratings really stink. He's at about 3%. Uh, he did very, very well. His party did very, very well, unexpectedly well, in the 2014 parliamentary elections. He had a big faction in parliament, uh, but the party has really cratered for a number of reasons we can get into in the Q&A. But they've kicked out a lot of really talented people. They just lost their pro-business uh, wing of the party. And frankly, I don't think Samopomich is going to make it. They, he's definitely not... Uh, going to win the presidential election, and he's probably he may or may not make it into into the parliamentary uh, race. Right now, they're at about three percent. You need five to make the threshold. The the next old face that we know uh, is Gritsinko, the former defense minister. This will be his third time in the ring, and he's probably not going to win either. Of all the Maidan opposition people, he was polling the highest, but he has a problem. He's very smart. He's very, very smart. He's fun to talk to. He should be at CSIS. He should be the head of policy planning. He should not be a president. He says everything he thinks. This is not, this is not how you win elections. I, I, I like talking to him, but he's, he's not presidential. So, yes, he's doing well. The West got really excited about him. Maybe this is Gritsenko's chance. It's not Gritsenko's chance. He, he's very good with ideas. Uh, and I, I, don't think that he's, uh, I don't think he's got a great shot. In 2010, he took 1.2%. In, in 2014, he took 55 So I think people got excited. Maybe his numbers are starting to crest. Uh, to me, the more interesting question is, oops, sorry, is what's going on with the new forces? That, that haven't uh, co co competed in the big elections. So there's at least four circles. There's probably more. The first circle everyone knows. It's the three amigos. It's Sergei Leshenko, Svetlana Zalashuk, and Mustafa Naim. Very talented. We've all read the New Yorker profile. They're hip and swinging. They're hipsters. They're cool. They have their laptops. We've all talked to them. Uh, you know, they get a lot of attention. Um, no one knows which way they're going to go. I've been talking to them for months. They keep promising they're going to build a new party or they're going to um, join this group. Uh, I think that they're going to stay together, and I think that they're waiting for an offer from a party. But right now, it's just a lot of talk. I think Mustafa Naim is extremely talented. Uh, among the group, my view is that he is the most talented, and he's got a great future, and he should 
try to become a minister, not president. I hope, Mustafa, you're listening. Uh, that's my free advice to you. Number two circle is an interesting group. It's Hannah Hopko, who's the chairwoman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, the woman that you see right there, who's the uh, vice minister, uh, of, vice prime minister of European integration, uh, Ivanka Klimpish-Cincinnati, uh, uh, Sergei Kvit, who's the former education minister, and a couple of young, youngish new MPs within Narodi Front. NF is Narodi Front. So that, that's, that's a group that's interesting because they have political experience. They've been in government. They've run things. So that's one group that I, that I personally will be watching. A third group that I'm watching is a new one that's just starting to bubble up. It's called the Personal Reserve of Ukraine. And it's a group of businessmen and people who've also been in government who are, are working together. Right now, it calls itself an educational initiative. Uh, I think Personal Reserve of Ukraine is a bizarre name. That's the little uh, translation from Ukrainian. Their slogan is People Matter, uh, or People Are Important. So they, they've attracted someone like Max Nef uh, Nefedov, who's at the bottom. He's uh, the guy who was put a stamp on Prozoro. Uh, the first guy is really interesting. He's the, the, the head of the former Samopomish faction, now Kiev team, and the Kiev City Council, been pushing through anti-corruption initiatives in the City Council. This is one group to watch. The fourth, I think this is less of a group to watch. It's, it's brand new. It's called European 100. It's being put together by a guy who's very talented. He's, the four, he's one of the heads of the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. And this is a group of, of people who are 20 to 30 years old, so very young, even younger than me. Uh, and they're, a, they're explicitly a political party. Uh, they're pro-NATO, pro-EU. You. And you know they're they're trying. To, they don't have any political experience. They have a lot of passion. They've been out on the Maidan. Uh, you know they can. They have they have good ideas, pro Western views, uh, but they don't really have a lot of momentum behind them yet. And I mean, we'll see what happens. But if I were just as an analyst, I would be watching the middle two. The the group on the left uh, is interesting, but I want to see some action because I've heard a lot of talk in the last nine months. Okay, the, the biggest question, though, that I left for last, because it's dramatic, is Slava Vakarchuk. I can't believe we're still having this conversation. Slava Vakarchuk is the most famous rock star in Ukraine. He is a physicist. He has a PhD in, in physics, so do not dismiss him as a, an airheaded rock star. He is not. He's very smart. Uh, he is calculating. He's very interesting. Um, and we don't know if he's going to run or not. Every single day I hear Slava's in. No, Slava's out. Slava's in. Slava's out. We don't know. The interesting thing about him and the thing to bear in mind is that he has huge name recognition. He has moral leadership in a way that basically no other person or very few people in Ukraine do. He could probably unify all of these groups that I've talked about. Now, he probably can't unify uh, Gritsenko and Sadovi. There's bad blood between the old forces. So this is one important point. These two guys do not like each other. Uh, they probably will not unify uh, unless there's a miracle uh, in Kiev between now and January. So the, one of the big questions everyone wants to know is who can unify all these disparate groups? It's probably Slava, but with the caveat that those, the two older forces probably will not get behind any kind of unification effort. But we don't know if Slava's going to run. And from a Western perspective, if I were the State Department, I would be pushing him on a couple of different issues privately. I'd be asking him for his views on, on the war in Ukraine, and I'd be asking him for his views on separation of powers. He said some bizarre things on these, and uh, Slava, 
uh, you know, spent a year at Stanford. He spent a year at Yale. He's read a lot of political philosophy. I challenged him. He told me he's read Francis Fukuyama's books that are 800 pages, The Origins of the Political Order. I mean, he, he's a serious person, but you know, he's never held. He held elected office very briefly uh, back after the the Orange Revolution, and he quit. Uh, so that, I mean, that's another concern that I personally have is his record says that he's a quitter. Is he really a serious person? Is he really ready uh, for the, this kind of campaign? In conclusion, th these are my, my five big uh, conclusions. Without Slava Vakarchuk, there's little hope for a consolidated Maidan opposition candidate for president. Without Slava, kiss it goodbye. Uh, number two, without Slava, the second round of the presidential race is likely to be Poroshenko versus Timoshenko. This is old Ukraine versus old Ukraine. This is terribly disappointing after five years. I know Taras is going to disagree with me on this and bring it on. Number three, uh, even with the changing uh, changes to the voting demographics that Taras has accurately described where there's 16% less pro-Russians, Russian interference is still a massive threat. The, the Russian Federation is still a major player, and there are so many ways to interfere, even if Boyoko doesn't make the second round. This is something the Atlantic Council is watching. The Atlantic Council has two big efforts right now. One is the Ukraine Alert blog that I run. That's the blood and guts of all the, the good stuff, right? And then there's the election task force, and that's looking at foreign interfer uh, interference in the elections. So please watch our website. We're going to be doing both of these things. Uh, but they're two different lines of effort, just to be clear. Number four, Taras is absolutely right that the biggest danger in 2019 is a return to massive instability. And this is something that I think we should all be worried about. And number five, I, I want to uh, give Andreas Umland, uh, who's an, one of the best Ukraine analysts in Kiev, uh, a, a shout out. He just published a piece for us that was very unpopular. It made everyone angry, which as an editor I love. And he said the West needs to start preparing for a Timoshenko presidency. You know, there's a lot of excitement. The billboards are everywhere. Like I said, I've gotten caught up in it. But the bottom line is that Timoshenko is ahead in, in both the presidential and parliamentary polls. She is the most talented politician in Ukraine. Uh, she is brilliant on the stump speech. And the West needs to prepare. I'm not endorsing any candidate. But she, just analytically, the, 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 the momentum, the numbers are behind her. And we would be fools if we didn't start preparing for what a, a Timoshenko presidency meant. Thank you. OK, great. Can I have the quick tutorial? Uh, this one right there. OK. Oh, I forgot one last slide. This is the last slide. Get your phones out. You have permission to pull your phones out. Uh, this is the Ukraine Alert blog at the Atlantic Council. So please check us regularly. It's Atlantic Council slash blog slash Ukraine Alert. Thanks. Great. Uh, that was the rapid color commentary on the Ukrainian election. You definitely should have gone last. So um, I want to talk about the, the thing that's really overshadowing these elections at this point, and that's martial law and what, why it was called, and what effect it's likely to have on the elections. Uh, and it's part of a general problem uh, in Ukraine, which is both Petro Poroshenko's problem and Ukraine's problem. Um, this is, as are all elections in Ukraine, a very high-stakes election. Why are they high-stakes elections? Because the people who hold power also are able to channel resources to their close associates. And so it's not just the presidency, but this whole entourage of elites that benefits from that person being in power. And every time we see power changing hands in Ukraine, it's been highly destabilizing. And I think that we are likely to see that again. Uh, in this case, it's also potentially a threat to Ukraine's territorial integrity. That Poroshenko was able to establish a variety of deals with the uh, powers that be in Kharkov Oblast, in Odessa, 
Kalaev, some of these southern and eastern regions, which looked that they were going to go you know, the way of the Donbass or Crimea, he was able to establish deals with those elites. Now, we might call those deals corruption. Uh, they are personalistic deals that are set between Poroshenko and these elites, but they will not necessarily survive into a new presidency if Poroshenko is not that president. In other words, there is a name on those, and it's Poroshenko's name. And so if we see a change in power, it's possible that the deals that are currently holding Ukraine together, fragile as that is, could come to be undone. Poroshenko's campaign, right, he's got to win, right, in order to, to, to keep this system going. Um, and his campaign has been based on three things, army, language, and faith. Now, two out of three of those are highly divisive, right? Army, not so much, but certainly language and faith are not things that unify Ukrainians. Uh, he has pursued autocephaly for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, right? As Taras pointed out, this is a big deal. It's not just a big deal in terms of Ukraine's relations with Russia. It's a, term, it's a big deal in terms of Ukrainians' relationships with each other. There are a lot of Ukrainians who are tied to parishes that are loyal to the Moscow Patriarchate. Right? And those people see the Ukrainian autocephalous church as a heretical organization. And so it's possible that this push for unifying the faith of Ukrainians is seen as an imposition by a significant portion of the Ukrainian population. And in fact, that has not been a very successful move for Poroshenko's campaign, as we'll see in a minute. Language, right? Ukraine, as Taras pointed out, you know, in his discussion of the end of Russian soft power, uh, Russian is no longer permissible on the airwaves right, in Ukraine, or there are high res significant restrictions uh, on the use of Ru the Russian language uh, in publications and in the press and in the media. You know, for a country where a significant portion of the population speaks Russian, uh, likes to speak Russian, likes to get their news in Russian, that's not a popular move. And so to the extent that Ukraine has historically been struck by these divisions over things like language, forcing one policy, as Poroshenko's campaign does, appeals to parts of Ukraine, right? The Ukrainian language speaking parts of Ukraine, and particularly the far west, Galicia, right? where you have a strong commitment to language as a part of Ukrainian national identity, but it's potentially alienating to other parts, right? the south and the east. Um, the army, certainly more popular, uh, but Poroshenko has, you know, initially he ran you know, in 2014 as a more moderate candidate. In other words, he was the guy who was going to unify Ukraine. He was very popular. You see his popularity plummet uh, with the anti-terror operation. right? So war has been very bad for Russia and Ukraine. As, as Taras pointed out, Russia is extreme, the Russian state is very unpopular these days in Ukraine. Uh, but it's also been unpopular for Poroshenko. In other words, people don't like the bloodletting and they hold both sides to some extent responsible. So to the extent that Poroshenko is essentially pushing uh, uh, for a conflictual solution here, a military solution, uh, that also is hurting his popularity. So these are divisive issues, this campaign. And it has left him with a regional base that was not his original region. Now, Kuchma pulled this off in the past, right? Kuchma was elected in 1994, primarily with the south and the east uh, and some parts of the center. He shifted his orientation by 1999 to the center and west, right? He distanced himself from Russia. Um, 
it's possible that Poroshenko can do this. But the problem is that some of the other candidates running have strong, strong roots uh, in that center and west. And so he has left himself in a very bad position. And right now, Petro Poroshenko is extremely unpopular. Let me just give you, oops, give you some surveys. Um, this is from, this is a 10,000 respondent survey, so a great survey, so there are very low margins of error on each of these. Uh, uh, from September, uh, early September, um, if you look at the numbers for the total, one of these things is a pointer, I think. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Timoshenko's in the lead, but as, as Melinda pointed out, right, she is the, the, uh, the biggest of the dwarfs. Right? This is not where you want to be going into a, a presidential election, you know, getting 11% support. And she's the highest. Poroshenko himself, 7.1. Nobody mentioned Zelensky, the comedian, right? the clown in this race, pulling on par with Poroshenko, certainly within the margin of error. Slava Vakarchuk, <coughs> yeah, OK. But in general, Nobody's doing well, but most importantly, Poroshenko is not doing well. And he's particularly not doing well in the south, the east, east central regions, right? And he is not leading in any of the regions of Ukraine. There is no region that is his basis of support. Right? So he has failed to make this pivot to the center and west, right? And he has seriously lost support uh, in the south and in the east. Two months later, or a month and a half later, uh, you'd think that the declaration of, or, or engineering the process of Ukrainian autocephaly, the language law, uh, and a bunch of other factors would have assisted Poroshenko, right? Would have made him appear more of a statesman. It's, you know, sort of concrete evidence of uh, the things that he's talking about in his campaign, but his support has declined, right? So you look from Poroshenko earlier, 7.1 to 6.3, right? Uh, and you know, now Zelensky is ahead of him. And most importantly, right, Taras mentioned that you know, there's no way that the, the sort of a, a Russophile candidate is gonna make it into the second round, right? But that's definitely not true. Uh, and in November, uh, the opposition, the Russophile opposition, the former members of the Party of Regions, have started to unify uh, around candidates. Now there's no way they're winning the election, right? It's very unlikely that they would win the election unless they get into the second round with, uh, with a really undesirable candidate, which is possible with everybody polling in the single digits or early uh, low double digits. Uh, so they created a common platform uh, at the beginning of November. Uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Rabinovich, so one of the leaders, if, you, if we go back, right, we have Boyko polling at 6%, Rabinovich at 3.6, right? Their combined is about 10%. That gets them well above Poroshenko, right? Uh, and uh, Rabinovich dropped out and he said he's, he's supporting Boyko. So there's some degree of consolidation behind uh, a Russophile candidate. Taruta is probably gonna do the same, right? From Donetsk. Uh, and so it's possible that this coalition can knock Poroshenko even out of the second, getting into the second round. It seems quite likely. So here's Poroshenko's problem. In a free and fair election, he's gonna lose, right? Pure and simple. And he's not just gonna lose, he's not even likely to make it to the second round, okay? Now granted, elections in Ukraine, not always free and fair. 
there's this thing called admin resource or administrative resources where you can manage to get state employees to vote for you because you can keep track of you know, who they voted for in their voting places and punish them after the election. But honestly, administrative resources work well if you have a, a, a chance of making it to office, if there's some prospect of being punished. Uh, but it's going to be tough for him, uh, regardless. And regardless, we would like this to be a free and fair election. So what do you have? Last week, we have the imposition of martial law. It was imposed on only 10 provinces, but those 10 provinces cover about 40% of Ukraine's population. And it's not just a random draw of Ukraine's population. This is a disproportionately Russian-speaking part of Ukraine's population. Uh, and these are disproportionately the areas where the opposition is doing well and Poroshenko is doing poorly. In fact, the difference between uh, his support in the, op the regions where martial law was imposed and the regions where it was not is about half. In other words, his support is double in the regions that are not getting put under martial law. So he's putting martial law on the regions where he is least popular. In some ways, this goes back to the sort of classic struggles in Ukraine. Right on the, on, the, on the right here, you have the results from Ukraine's presidential election in 2010, second round, where Yanukovych beat Tymoshenko. Right? It's not accidental. Right? You know, there's an official justification for the regions that receive martial law, but it also happens to be that these are the regions uh, that have historically been more pro-Russian and are likely to be in opposition to this Poroshenko pivot. Right? It's a solution for him. There's no question. I'm not saying this is the only reason he did it. Ukraine clearly faces an external threat from Russia. There might be reasons to declare martial law. But the reasons to declare martial law two weeks ago look like they have a lot more to do with the election than they do with the external threat, which has been pretty substantial over the last five years. One reason is it separates him from the comedians and the musicians, right? Not to dismiss Slava. I understand he has a degree in physics, but he's also not. PhD. <laughs> degree. <laughs> right? Probably good that. Um, yeah. Berezovsky was a mathematician. These are, not, these are not dumb guys, right? But uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to be elected. And he thinks that being seen as a strong leader, you know, you know a country in crisis, you're not going to put you know, the guy who sings well in power or the comedian you're going to be less likely to be indifferent to who holds office. Right? Mm -hmm. Also, the election campaign cannot, according to the Constitution, cannot take place under martial law. Now, it's true the campaign is already taking place. But the official beginning of the campaign is 90 days before the election. And if martial law had been uh, imposed for 60 days, as Poroshenko initially proposed, that would have gone into the campaign period and would have necessarily, by the Constitution, led to the election being postponed. Now, Ukrainians are very savvy. The rest of the elite was up in arms. So it got rolled back to 30 days. But there's certainly a possibility that that's going to be extended. Right? It's not like the conflict with Russia is going away. There may be conditions under which even the Ukrainian government can influence that heating up a little bit to justify the extension of martial law in these regions. And that would lead to the postponing of the elections, which would be a great solution for a lot of people, actually. There's a lot of uncertainty, even for Tymoshenko. She may be polling at 11%. 11% is still not any, anything that you can count on for victory. So holding this thing off, particularly keeping people's seats in parliament, might not be a, 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 a position that the elite could not rally around. Um, 
But also, martial law allows you to do some things that are going to have a significant effect on the election, right? Some of it, part of the martial law decree was about mobilizing resources for war, but part of it is also about the restriction of political rights and liberties. Uh, and so uh, it restricts freedom of organization and association and assembly. Uh, it gives the government greater powers to arrest, right? Uh, it also limits uh, free speech. And so by doing that in these regions, in the South and the East, you can certainly disrupt opposition campaign efforts, right? This is something where they can place direct restrictions uh, on campaigning that's already taking place. And if you look back at 2014, one of the big shifts in that election, part of it is the loss of the Donbass and Crimea, that's shaping the, the electorate. But it is also that people don't vote in the South and the East. Turnout is significantly lower. And so one strategy for Poroshenko is to further depress turnout in these regions where he is unpopular uh, and to try and bring up his support in the regions where he is popular. But this is not good for Ukraine, right? I could see how it works for Poroshenko and the people so closely associated with him. And it's not inconceivable that Poroshenko staying in power is okay for Ukrainian territorial integrity. But it's terrible for Ukrainian democracy, right? In a democracy, the unpopular incumbents have to lose, right? And democracy, keep in mind, it's not just that we think democracy is good and we're starry-eyed about it. If you've read your Shakespeare, you know what non-democratic transitions look like, right? They lead to violence. The virtue of democracy is it is a way of legitimately transferring power and conveying legitimacy to the people who hold power, right? You deviate from that, right? You start using martial law to postpone an election. The legitimacy of that government is weakened. The legitimacy of the Ukrainian government was also weakened in the spring of 2014, right? Because that was a change in power outside of an election. And we saw the results of that. In the south and the east of Ukraine, there was, according to surveys, uh, uh, there was a, a, a widespread belief that the government that came to power after the Maidan was illegitimate. And that fed secession. It created a door that was very wide open in Crimea and in the Donbass for Russian intervention. And we don't want to see that again, right? Delegitimizing the Ukrainian government by postponing elections is a very dangerous thing. Uh, particularly when martial law is only imposed on some regions, this is going to aggravate the regional polarization. It's not like these regions are unaware of the fact that they are facing restrictions that other Ukrainian citizens don't. That wouldn't make me happy. Right? Particularly if I'm attached to speaking and reading in Russian, even though I'm a loyal Ukrainian citizen, I don't like the idea of, of these restrictions being placed. And so you can see potential alienation of the South and the East. This leads to the risk of instability and violence, particularly if Poroshenko tries to extend martial law to stay in power and other members of the elite, Timoshenko first among them, decide that this is not okay. Right? And it's not clear that Poroshenko has the capacity to really impose martial law. Right? This is not Wojciech Jaruzelski. Right? This is a different world. Um, and so in some ways, I feel like we're seeing the Maidan all over again. Right? Where in the West, we're gung-ho on, you know, like, we love the opposition. And we love, we love the, we, you know, we're sort of doubling down on Poroshenko and Ukraine sovereignty and all of these good things. But in reality, some of these steps, like autocephaly of the Orthodox Church, the language laws, and the war in the East, 
are things that are splitting Ukrainians. Right? We tend to think of Ukraine as this country that is united against Russia and we support Ukraine. But in fact, what is often the case is that Ukraine is divided and we're supporting one side of that divide and alienating the other. And that created tremendous political risks with very bad consequences in spring of 2014. And there's a great concern that that's going to happen now. Thanks. Okay, thank you. So this was good. We had a, uh, a wide variety of viewpoints, including on who actually is going to win. Um, and I want, I hope we can take up that conversation in the, in the Q&A. Um, I think one area where there was agreement was that the risks of instability and, and possibly violence if this election go wrong are real. Uh, and that reinforces the point that I think all of you made about the, the importance of this election, even in a country where we say that every election is critical. Um, let me just start with, with one question before we kick it off to the audience, and is that is in various ways you've all made reference to Russia and how the election is taking place under the shadow of the conflict with Russia, how uh, the potential for Russian interference is, is still there, and what Russia may do after the election. So I was hoping that uh, maybe each of you could elaborate a little bit on how you expect or what you understand to be Russia's calculation vis-a-vis -vis the election and what kind of actions you expect from Russia either to influence the election or depending how things go in its aftermath. Jeff, um, before, well, I can maybe combine it, maybe you could do that. And could I just uh, give a few uh, rebuttals to the last speak? Because he's making claims which have no basis in fact. But why don't we save this for the Q&A? Absolutely no basis in fact. And these are very strong points he's making. He's been very adamant, using a lot of hyperbole, and they're not true. I think we should save that for the Q&A. Why don't we just touch on the Russia point now? As always. If there's a question that comes up that relates to that, I'm happy to have you guys take it wherever you'll go. So does anybody want to take the Russia? Well, the, just on the, maybe quickly, then you can jump in. But on the, on the Russia question, um, again, this is an example of um, how Keith Darden is not a Ukraine expert. He obviously doesn't follow developments in Ukraine. Uh, the, there is no United, United candidate um, pro-Russian camp. They split yeah. two or three weeks ago. There are, I, you obviously weren't listening to my talk. I, I said there are three or four candidates from the pro-Russian camp now. Um, and um, the gas lobby, if you want to call it that, have been ejected from the opposition bloc. And they've teamed up with Viktor Medvedchuk um, and that. Um, and that together, um, shows that um, you know, this is not the, 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 the political machine that you had in the Yanukovych era or prior to 2014. And it's not true to say that Russian language is not permitted on Ukrainian airwaves. You're just not telling the truth here. Have you heard of TV channels News One, 112? These are both Medvedchuk controlled channels. They exist in Ukraine. Poroshenko has not closed them down. Have you heard of Interchannel? Yes, it also uses. Closed. There's certainly a place greater restrictions. None, of, none of these channels have been restricted, or I've been on 112 in September. It's still operational. I was on a four hour talk show in, in September. You're actually saying fake news here in your talk. You're not telling the truth about these things. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, can I respond? Of course. Yeah. All right. Uh, you get two minutes and then we'll. Okay, no, Melinda, go ahead. Sorry. I'll, I'll take mine. Okay. 
place. Okay, to, to answer Jeff's question, uh, Ukraine is Russia's playground. Uh, there are so many different ways that the that Russia can interfere in the elections. Uh, they can use cyber. They can interfere in political parties. What Taras is saying is true. There was concern before uh, that the pro-Russian vote would uh, get together and there would be a unified candidate. That's not happening now. Akhmetov is not supporting this this, this unified group. So th- there, there's splits. And the, the, the way that the pro-Russian vote is configured right now is not probably not strong enough to make it into the first round. So a lot of analysts are breathing a sigh of relief right now that the, the very pro-Russian party will probably not make it to the second round. But look, just because the pro-Russian party doesn't make it to the second round doesn't mean that they're not playing games with other people, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be smart about this. Uh, like Taras said, there's plenty of, of pro-Russian media, and he can name the channels for you. Political violence, <coughs> violence is a reality. There's been a lot of assassinations. No one's talked about that mm-hmm. uh, in the East and even in Kiev. Uh, Putin can heat up violence in the Donbass any minute he wants. They can heat up violence in, in, in the South. They can heat up violence with smuggling out in the West. There are so many ways to destabilize Ukraine. Okay. Okay, if I could get the slides back up very quickly. I did not mean to suggest that the, the Russophile opposition is completely unified around one candidate. I simply suggested that two factions in the Russophile... Okay. I simply suggested that there's some unification in the Russophile factions, right, uh, around Boyko. I don't mean that everybody's in, right? But just look at the numbers. Do the math, right? Boyko, six. Rabinovich, 3.6. The sum is 9.9. That puts him second. Welcome to the second round of the election. That's all I'm suggesting. In a competition of dwarfs, if you can stand on somebody's shoulder, you get into the second round. It doesn't mean the entire opposition is unified. It doesn't need to unify in order to have this outcome. Right? That's all I'm suggesting. And in terms of Russian language, yes, would you say, Taras, that uh, Russian language media and Ukrainian language media are on equal legal footing in Ukraine? Yes. Really? Yep. And it's a complete myth that you've raised today about Russian language speakers being feeling that they're repressed. The opinion even polls the do. Post, the opinion polls do not Taras, show that. Taras, even the Kiev Post raised the alarms because essentially they would be put out of business by the Ukrainian language law because it said that you had to produce a, a publication entirely in Ukrainian with the same content as you would do in a non-Ukrainian language, and that would have broken their budget. Do you think Canada is a repressive country on language? I think Canada is a restrictive country on language, and it has decentralized its politics regionally that allows it to take into account its regional diversity. If in, U- if in Canada Ukraine's- you had French language imposed on the whole of the country, you would have secession in the Anglophone Canadian territories. Similarly, if you tried to impose it on the country as a whole uh, with, with Anglophone media, the problem with Ukraine is that you're trying to create national cultural policy a national language policy in a country that is divided by language and culture. And so some part is always going to feel alienated by that. 
but I think Taras's point is that Ukraine has fundamentally changed. These old divisions that you're talking about were true five years ago. Yeah, yeah, if you spend talking. a lot of time on the ground, Ukraine has massively changed. These these alliances are, are, are don't make sense anymore. And to your point on martial law, I, I think you're I think you're overblowing uh, the issue. I don't like martial law, uh, and I, I don't think I would defend it in print. But Timoshenko agreed to a 30-day martial law period, and so did Naroni Front. Yatsenyuk and Timoshenko both agreed to it. So and Sadovy. And Sadovy. And Sadovy. So it's it's inaccurate to describe it as just a political ploy. By now, who did, who did not agree to it? This is very important. Virtually all the deputies in the South and the East, even if they were part no, of the No, that's not true. So this is, they did true. not show up for the vote. They just didn't vote. The two and so opposition bloc voted against. Many of the unaffiliated candidates from the South and East voted against. And a great many others simply did not vote. You're and granted, Timoshenko, once it's rolled back to 30 days, you can see all sorts of reasons why. As I said, you could get unification of the elite around the extension of martial law. Nobody thinks with any confidence that they're winning this election. It's highly uncertain. It's a way of kicking the can down the road, particularly for the parliamentary elections. There's a great risk there, right? Because it's pretty clear, as, the, you, know, as you pointed out at the beginning, that this is going to be a throw the bums out election. Right? It might be. We it don't might know. Be, we right? don't know. And so that's going to be true potentially for the parliamentary elections too. And so getting the elite to postpone elections so that they can keep their seats, not necessarily I'm sorry, going to be an unpopular move. You're making things up again. I'm sorry. They voted at the same time for martial okay. law as election day, 31st of March. That is illegal election day. Stop making things up. Yes. And, and Poroshenko said the very next God, day yeah. in a speech, Taras, right? He said the very next day that martial law could be extended if the conflict with Russia, if Russian aggression hadn't ended by that period. I don't think Timoshenko is it going to agree to that. It opens the door. Why declare martial law? Okay, Why declare martial law? We're kind of in the, point, we're kind of in the place in the of speculation weeds. now. Be, well, yeah. In the weeds, but also because we don't have really solid data on a lot of these questions, and people are interpreting them in different ways, which I think is good. But I want to turn the conversation over to the audience, because I think they may be interested mm -hmm. in some of this as well as in some other topics. So why don't we start back here? And please wait for the microphone, and please identify yourself. Hi, Martin Zvoners, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. Thank you for this very intense and important conversation. <laughs> the one name that I haven't heard any kind of depth in your conversation about yet is Yulia Timoshenko. Well, you, you have Poroshenko in trouble. You have the pro-Russian parties both somewhat dis dissipated but also, to an extent, looking like they may be looking for ways to come together again. Where does this leave the, according to the polls, front runner in all these conversations? And just how, how is she going to break down in all of this? Where is her position going to be? And just which, where in the big debate is she going to come out on all this if, in fact, she ends up being as Melinda pointed out, quite possibly the president of Ukraine. I'll, I'll save you the, the, the two minutes and say, read Andreas Umland's piece that we've just <laughs> published on the Ukraine Alert blog. He does, uh, I think, a service for all of us because Timoshenko has had a long career and she's been all over on the map on a variety of issues. So everyone's trying to figure out 
what kind of Timoshenko would we get if she's president? And he, he uh, provides, I think, in an, an overly optimistic piece about the, the good Timoshenko and what might come out. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth a read as, as a thought piece, but he says, number one, it's important because she will be the first female president in the Slavic world. And, and that, that, that's, that's a fair point. And break, breaking through those boundaries is, is a fair point. Um, she's campaigning on gas, though. Her, her big issue is gas. Everyone, though, in Kiev is wondering where she'll be on the <coughs> Russia question. Has she, made it, has she made a deal with Putin? No one knows. There's huge speculation. Uh, the press has pushed her very hard on this point. Though, if we go back to the, the, the graphs, uh, one of the one of the, the thoughts is if you look at uh, Zelensky, the the, the comic, uh, he's many people. If you talk to all the political technologists, uh, he's thought to be uh, sort of a thought bubble or a, sort of a, um, an experiment, a trial balloon. And many people think that he'll get, he would give his support to, to Timoshenko in the second round. The I'll just add to this about Timoshenko. I think um, the way to look at this as well is to look at it, and I've done comparative studies of populism. Um, there are many things that populists have in common. One of them is that they're devices. And we know this from the United States. You either love Trump or you hate him. Yeah. And that's true of populists everywhere. And, and that makes it very difficult for them to win. Uh, parliamentary elections, they can get, you know, like in Austria and somewhere, 25%, but to win a presidency, to get 50%. Um, and Trump has his 40% base, but can he get, you know, you have your 18th century election law here so he can win. Um, but the, um, but I, I, I think that's the problem that Timoshenko has. It's the same. People either hate Timoshenko or they love her. Now, um, you're, she's going to have the problem of trying to convince the people that she couldn't convince in 2010. Shall we call them the yuppies, the, the middle class, the urban, the urban hipsters, the, the people you, you were pointing to. Um, are they going to vote for it? Probably not. They don't vote, though. Well, some of them, some, I think some do, some don't. But nevertheless, the, her base of support is lower socioeconomic groups, pensioners, small town, villages, and, and that kind of thing. She also, um, um, the two things that hang over her all the time, and we were, Melinda and myself were both at the Yalta European Strategy Forum in September when BBC Hard Talk, Stephen Sacco, pinned her on these questions. Two things which, which hangs over her head all the time is the Russia question. She still can't explain what happened with the gas contract in 2009. She, she, she doesn't have an answer for it. Even, she can't even say, look, I, I messed up, which is fine if you say that. She can't say that. But the second thing is, and Vox Ukraine have this, they, they, they track what each deputy says and votes like, and they do a graph of the biggest liars in Ukrainian politics. She's always number one. That's another consistent factor amongst all populists. They lie. They exaggerate, they lie, they deceive, they, they don't, they're economical with the truth. And I come from Britain, Brexiteers were like this during the election, during the referendum. And so that's her other problem. People don't trust her. So yes, she, by the way, I, I think we're, we're, we're talking about nothing. Opinion polls today, four months before an election, mean nothing. Well, <laughs> they absolutely mean nothing. If anything, we know from the Brexit campaign and from the US elections, four months before an election campaign, polls mean nothing. They're also bought and paid for in Ukraine. So yes. most yeah. politicians I know treat them like something you throw out every day. Okay, so, so, now, so now we so, have... So the undecideds are the big factor that exactly. Melinda talked about. Exactly. And okay. undecideds are more likely to go, well, Poroshenko's not great, but yeah. I think. Yeah. 
Actually, the results of polls are not bought and paid for in Ukraine. There are fantastic poll polling agencies in Which Ukraine, Kiev International Institute of Sociology. I'm a political scientist. Other so political scientists look at polls. And uh, quite frankly, it's not right to say that polls are irrelevant four months out from, a, from, a, from an election. That's actually when polls start to matter quite a bit. And Tymoshenko is leading in the polls. Now, in addition to, you know, although I am an expert on Ukraine, I have never worked for any of the sides in, in this particular election. I have never received money from any, of, any sides in this election. And I would say that uh, Tymoshenko has a good chance of winning. And I think that is what alarms Poroshenko and his people most of all. Uh, that she is not only has a good chance of winning, but it's quite clear that all of the arrangements and control of assets that have been doled out uh, to the various supporters and you know, uh, uh, elites affiliated with Poroshenko, that she would rearrange that. Every time she comes to power, she reallocates assets. And she knows how to do it. She knows how to play this game. Now, the results, I kind of agree with, with Andreas in the sense that the results you know, may or may not be disastrous. Right? She is running on, a, on a, a very populist campaign which says you know, increasing gas tariffs is a crime. Right? We all know that there were a lot of crimes associated with subsidized gas. Right? As Taras pointed out, this was one of the primary Please stop means. quoting me. <laughs> I don't That's agree okay. with you. Thank you. Was that back when you were working for Yulia, that you don't think that gas tariffs are a source of I corruption? I was working for Yulia. OK. Um, and so I would say that her chances of victory are pretty good. Can I make one more point on her, her okay. platform? Yes. OK. Uh, it, it's interesting to dig through her. So uh, all the signs in Kiev are about the new course. You see this everywhere. Yulia's everywhere. But uh, she's emphasizing new, 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 new. And it's a smart strategy, right? She's an old politician, so new is a good word for her. Uh, and she's, got, uh, she's also talking to civil society and trying to embrace them. They don't, a lot of them don't really want the embrace. Um, but she held these very long policy conferences and brought in all these new experts and people who are not necessarily necessarily affiliated with her party. And there seems to be more openness with ideas. That doesn't mean that it'll translate into anything, but it, it looks and feels a little different. The last point that Andreas made was that uh, Timoshenko may actually be harder on the oligarchs uh, than Poroshenko has been. And that's one reason that, that the oligarchs are a little nervous as well. Um, sorry, that's one of those oligarchs. This is rather amusing to say that she's going to be harder on the oligarchs because Kolomoisky is supporting Timoshenko. Uh, so come on, give me a break. Yeah, Ukrainian political parties are all supported by oligarchs, from yes. the communists to the, far, to the, right, to the far right. right. So, so the idea that she's going to be anti Which oligarchs is she going to be hard on? Yeah, right, yeah, that's right. The yeah, that's the question. I just one final point is, if you think the elections are going to happen in March, and someone is going to win them, right now, who could you say is more likely to win them than Yulia Tymoshenko? I think you'd be hard pressed to identify a candidate yeah. that's doing better. Yeah. Great to democracy. Katarina Sadova, recently out of Georgetown University. Um, thank you for a wonderful discussion, very heated. Uh, my question is, we hear a lot, especially in the past week, this um, hyperventilation over martial law and its hypothetical effects. Yet, could you comment on the various forces that are currently running for the position of the presidency in Ukraine? How would they potentially respond to an escalation of crisis that is choking off economic southeast in Ukraine? Um, should they be, and some of them will be, in the position of commander-in-chief? 
Okay, so you're asking how they would respond, not to the declaration of martial law, but to escalation. Foreign policy. Okay. As, um, as a commander-in-chief in the situation of I think it's good here to put it in comparative perspective. Um, France had martial law for two years throughout the country. And uh, I want to say not only, but 251 people were killed from terrorism. Ukraine's had uh, a war for five years, and, tw and I calculate 20,000 20, civilians and combatants have died. So let's put that in perspective. Poroshenko wanted martial law throughout the country, so I don't know why the anti-Poroshenko slant to the martial law. It was parliament that came with him with a compromise on 10 regions. Poroshenko wanted it in Western Ukraine and Central Ukraine as well as Eastern Ukraine. So um, I, I think we should put that in perspective. The, the, the elections will go ahead in Ukraine and, and in France, democratic rights and other things also went ahead under martial law. The idea that they're incompatible is, I think, one of the myths that we've heard today on the panel. Did, did you want to address the, the defense issue? Well, I mean, I, I think you're right that it's going to become an issue in the sense that you're not just electing a president, you're electing a commander in chief. Yeah. And, and when we were at, the, again, the old European strategy in September, Melinda and me, uh, when Stephen Sacker asked Timoshenko this question on Russia, the entire hall applauded. So she is distrusted on this question. Um, the problem you have is that, and you see this in all the billboards, is that anti-war populism. You know, people do want an end to the war. Um, and so, so politicians are playing on this. Everybody says they have a plan to end the war. The only person that can end this war is Putin. Yeah. Um, not a Ukraine politician. And if you're a Ukraine politician claiming that, it's, you're, you're, you're not being truthful with voters and you probably want to do a deal. Like, for example, Viktor Pinchuk on the Wall Street Journal about three years ago, where he called for, let's give, let's give up on the Crimea, and in return, Russia pulls out of the Donbass. That, that's the kind of deal that probably some of people like oligarchs would go for. But that's never going to fly. Ukrainian opinion polls refuse that. Ukrainian opinion polls show that there are four things that uh, they, they insist on for a peace deal. The return of Crimea, Russian withdrawal from the Donbass, Russian paying for reparations of damages created and an end to Russian interference in Ukrainian domestic and foreign policy. That's what opinion polls show, and you're talking 70% plus in all four points. So no politician, even if they wanted to do a deal as commander-in-chief, you know, that could lead to violence. Yes, because you have, today you have 15% plus people who are veterans of the war. Um, and, you know, people have, people have died, including many Russian speakers, as I showed in the map. So, so uh, anybody who's president, anybody who's president or commander-in-chief is constrained yeah. by that. Yeah. They, they can't just do a deal with Putin, even if they wanted to. Um, but I, but I, I don't think any pro-Russian candidate will ever win in the next year. So. I but anyway, agree, I agree with Taras, but one sentence. If you also one little follow up, if you look at the opinion polling, Ukrainians are pragmatic. This is that I, this, the theme that I started with. They also know that the war in the Donbass is not going to end anytime soon. And if you look at the polling, they basically said, yeah, it's, it's going to take a long time. And it, yeah. it won't end as long as Putin's in power. Yeah, that's, I know. I agree. That's what no, that's what the opinion polls show. So they, they link the war to Putin directly. It's his fault. So I, I think we agree that uh, a lot for the end of this war depends on Russia. Uh, maybe not everything, but quite, quite a bit. But, uh, but that also raises the question about what martial law is good for. Martial law is not going to give Ukraine a navy. Ukraine lost its navy in 2014 when the entire leadership of the Ukrainian navy defected to the Russian side with two-thirds of their ships. 
right, as a result of the fact that they didn't recognize the new government in Kiev, right? That's not good, right? Martial law doesn't solve that problem. Martial law is not going to build ships for Ukraine. And it's not very clear how restricting freedom of assembly and freedom of speech assist in the war effort. That's what make people suspect, right? Now, there are things that could be done to settle the conflict, and the vast majority of Ukrainians, if you look at surveys, say that this has to end with a negotiated settlement. It's got to have a diplomatic settlement, right? Only a small percentage of Ukrainians think this can end through violence, right? Uh, and most don't want to give up the Donbass, right? So, there's good, somewhere in between all of that, between ceding that territory uh, and winning it back through conflict against a much more powerful neighbor, is some kind of highly asymmetric bargaining environment where Ukraine is probably not going to get the best deal that they want out of this. But if they want to settle it peacefully, they're going to have to accept some degree of what Russia is asking. Uh, for the constitution of Ukraine. Now, we consider that unpalatable, right? And the US government is certainly never going to say, you know, Ukraine needs to negotiate its constitution with Russia because Russia occupied part of its territory. This is not going to happen. But the reality is that Ukraine needs to negotiate with Russia to reconstitute its territory if that's what's going to end up, right? If you want to have a peaceful settlement and, you know, these are not equal partners, that's what it looks like. They're not equal partners, but one is a victim and one is an aggressor. I, I, I think the, the U.S. government would reject that out of hand. Of course, of course. I said that straight out. But, you know, that's the Melian dialogue. Well, I, I think the hope is that Ukraine will get its act together, re reform itself, and become such an attractive place that people in the Donbass and in Crimea will want to rejoin Ukraine proper. But martial law... Martial law has 30 the, days. This is a the, blip in the, in, in the picture. The you know, I guarantee next, the, and next a language March, law, we won't even be talking about martial law. And the going on law. with the church. You're these misreading are not the situation. The You're these totally are, misreading no, the situation. Are, it's just it's a these, blip, blip. These are not the steps um, that entice the Donbass back into Ukraine. And there's also Can the we Russia, not agree on that? There's also the Russia sure. factor in this, which yeah. is what is Russia prepared to accept? And I think that's yeah. a different yeah. conversation. We need but, another panel, just, Jeff. Yeah, I know. Well, what um, are you guys doing tomorrow? Can we listen to <laughs> no. on the church? On the okay, church very issue. briefly. Yeah, on the church. church. Um, Keith Darden has mentioned the church question a number of times, and again, he's not talking about reality. The majority of parishes of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, I mentioned these are a third of the Russian Orthodox Church in general, is in Ukraine. Majority of those parishes are in orange Ukraine, western central Ukraine. He's under the impression, like most often people in the West, that the, the sort of it's the Orthodox East versus the Catholic West. It's not true. Um, most Orthodox parishes are in what are Ukrainian speaking and what voted for orange and the Euromaidan revolution. Therefore, there will not be conflict over these issues, firstly. And secondly, um, the, 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 the decline of the Russian Orthodox Church and rise of autocephalous churches in Ukraine is being going on very slowly prior to 2014. By 2014, we had about, the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine had about 12% of, of believers. The Ukraine Orthodox, Ukraine Orthodox Church Kiev Patriarch had about 35%. Now that's speeded up since 2014, 2015. The idea that this is somehow going to be a, a, a divisive, conflictual issue is simply not true. 
To us, again, we get back to math. 15% plus 35% is 50%. Are you saying that half of uh, Ukraine is atheist? No. The way these I'm numbers saying, get I'm rigged saying, is I'll that launch. people will answer in a question, are you affiliated with the Moscow Patriarchate or are you affiliated with the Ukrainian independent, you know, sort of the Kiev What polls are you using? Tell me, tell me what, what, the what service you're using. The most recent one was the September uh, Kiev International Institute of Sociology poll, the same one that I cited here. I can give you the data afterwards. Sure, okay. And so most people say they're simply orthodox, right, which is the safe way to answer this question. But it is also a meaningful answer because up until recently, the Kiev Patriarchate was not recognized as an orthodox church, right? This was seen as heretical. It's only as a result of these changes, right? And so if you say you're Orthodox and saying that you're part of the Moscow Patriarchate, those were not at odds. Now, it's going to be interesting now as a result of the fact that Constantinople is siding with Kiev, right? And it's not clear how these parishes are going to go. But it is definitely a divisive issue in Ukraine. And it will be a divisive issue in Ukraine. Yeah. I all right, I'm not going to weigh in on this. Um, I'm going to turn this back to the audience. So in the, actually, I'm sorry, I saw you first. Hi, my name is Lee Block. I'm a junior at American University, actually currently a student of uh, Dr. Darden's. And uh, my question is this. So Ukraine seems to be hamstrung between two imposing imperatives regarding national stability. On the one hand, extending martial law will lead to instability. On the other hand, presidential transition with its shifting patronal networks and whatnot will also lead to instability, which makes martial law seem like an attractive option. So my question is, uh, what are your policy prescriptions to mitigate or, or balance these uh, conflicting problems? I don't get the question. The policy prescriptions to balance. Yeah, could you? Don't I don't know. I mean, I can tackle it, but... Okay, do policy prescriptions to balance with yeah. So I do, I agree there's a tension here, which is that changing, power changing hands is going to be stabilizing for Ukraine. And martial law is destabilizing for Ukraine, and putting off the elections will be destabilizing. And so I think the best outcome is for a lot of external pressure to be put on Ukraine, for the period of 30 days to be binding, for the elections to go forward, and we just see who wins. And that that person, at the very least, will carry with them the legitimacy of having won a democratic election. And that that can potentially ameliorate the sort of extra legal avenues of political influence, violence, uh, that might open up uh, if, if some deviation from the legal norm uh, happens. To put it in very basic terms, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be worried about political violence in Ukraine right now. Uh, we have a huge number of veterans. We have a lot of weapons. Uh, the, there's porous uh, connections with the weapons, and we have a lot. We have a lot. We have a rise of nationalist groups that no one wants to talk about, and we have the rise of militias. There's a lot of reasons. Uh, to Are you be talking about the U.S. or Ukraine now? I'm talking about Ukraine. Okay, I just wanted to check. I, I don't know. Come on, don't be silly. <laughs> I forgot to give the speech about what to do in the event of a crisis in here. Um, we'll not take <laughs> to do that. Have we hit crisis? Yeah, well, <clears throat> not yet. Uh, oh, sorry, could you that? Oh, sorry. Uh, you've said earlier on that uh, Ukraine is Russia's playground. This means that there is an infinite variety of interventions Russia can use for a long time to come to destabilize Ukraine, which implies there must be an agreement with Russia, some kind of agreement with Russia for Ukraine to have a decent chance to develop as a viable 
attractive democracy. Now, do you think uh, there are reasonable demands, quote unquote, reasonable demands by Russia that Ukraine could agree to, to help become a viable, democratic, attractive state? Are there reasonable demands that no. Ukraine could meet? And if it can't, I mean, aren't you saying then the outlook is the medium term continued instability because Russia can dial up and down any pressure at once? Um, I, just to say that I, I, I actually disagree a bit here with Melinda and with Keith. Uh, I don't think that Russia has, because of my slides again about soft power, I don't think Russia has the same level of abilities to impact upon things like violence in Ukraine as it used to. In 2014-2015, Russia undertook terrorist operations throughout, throughout the country, not just in Donbass. Terrorist attacks as opposed to warfare. Um, that, that ceased um, for a whole, whole bunch of reasons. So I don't think that Russia's ability to have an impact, and this is what, why I see Russian leaders are very angry with developments in Ukraine because they, they have lost or are losing that ability to influence domestic developments. Um, and that is clearly seen in the, in the, in the religious question, for example. For, for Russia, this is a major deal that Ukraine is becoming an independent orthodox country. Um, now, when you're talking about deals, um, the kind of deal that Keith, <coughs> Keith is talking about, Samuel Charap, his colleague and others, is that this is realism that Ukraine should do a realist deal, a Henry Kissinger-type deal with, um, with, with Russia, um, maybe give up on Crimea, maybe in return for Russia damping down its activities in the Donbass. Russia, Putin, because it's lost its voters, pro-Russian voters in Ukraine, Putin is desperate to get those 16% voters who vote pro-Russian back inside Ukraine. That's why he wants the Donbass back inside Ukraine. He doesn't want to annex the Donbass. He wants to, them to be back inside and so they can take part in Ukrainian elections. Um, and then part of this deal would be that Ukraine would declare itself somehow neutral, not, no longer support NATO membership. A lot of the people promoting this are very naive. They, th they think Ukraine can still be pro-EU. Russia will agree to this. Well, they obviously have forgotten 2014, if they think that. They also have forgotten one major thing. In 2014, Ukraine was neutral. It was called non-bloc status. Yeah. Did that stop Russia launching military aggression against Ukraine? No. So to answer your point, yes, I think the situation is bleak because uh, the, the demands that Putin would want to impose on Ukrainian leaders is unacceptable to practically everybody except maybe Boyko. Um, because you're talking about the kind of Belarusianization, Bosnianization, or whatever you want to call it, of the country that no Ukrainian president, even if they wanted to, and they stayed alive in the process, could do because it would be simply it wouldn't be a deal in their eyes it would be capitulation um, so it's not I don't think that's happened and Ukrainian opinion polls Melinda's right they're pragmatic Ukrainians they see when they're asked can this war end they say not as long as Putin's president so that at least takes it up to 2024 what they forget and I, I think is true Putin's president for life so that means that means that this is going to go on for a long time but even if Putin were to go you know, even if he lost a, a, a sparring match with a tiger in Siberia or fell off his horse, um, <coughs> whatever, um, there are many more Putins in Moscow because the fundamental question that this is all based on is national identity. 
uh, Russia cannot accept that Ukraine is a separate sovereign country and Ukraine is a separate people. Putin always talks about Ukrainians and Russians as Adinderod, one people. So these are Russians in Ukraine. And they're only not able to unite with us because the West is controlling the country. This is how they think in Moscow. They think that the fascists did a coup from Western Ukraine in 2014. They control Kiev and they, together with, with oligarchs, supported by the West, are preventing the, the real Ukrainians from joining us. Okay. This is not true, but this is what they think. So I don't think, I don't think, it, I don't think it will, will end soon, no. Um, and, uh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. sure. I, I think I have two sentences. I agree with, I think, everything Taras said, but uh, Moscow doesn't understand one thing. Uh, they're out of touch with reality in Ukraine. If you talk to uh, Ukrainians, they are not going to give up. They are so committed to changing their society and becoming a normal Western European country. Every time I get discouraged about Ukraine and want to go find a new job, I go visit Kiev. And, and my friends in civil society there tell me, don't give up. Don't give up on us. Uh, they're still at it. Uh, they, uh, frankly, the uh, Ukrainian civil society, uh, they are the most talented activists I've ever worked with in my entire career. They are smart and savvy and, and super committed. And there's these kinds of people in government still, even though there's fewer of them, in civil society. Uh, so I, I would just say it's going to be a long struggle. Uh, I think Taras is, is right to be pessimistic in, in the sort of short term. Realistic. Realistic, realistic. Okay. In, in the short term, the, the picture is, is gloomy. But the long term uh, view, I, 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 I'm optimistic about it. it it's not going to be a sprint like a lot of us thought it was. Ukrainian civil society has told me, we thought it was going to be a sprint. It's going to be a marathon. It's going to be a generational project uh, to transform Ukraine. Keith on the Melian dialogue. Yeah, basically. Um, so... Can Ukraine restore its territorial integrity uh, without making a deal? No. Is it possible that a deal can be made? These guys suggest no. And so that would mean protracted instability, right? That the, it will be a not so frozen conflict, really. Right? This hasn't been very frozen. Uh, this is not Transnistria. This is not Abkhazia. Like, this is an ongoing violence. And it's, it's hurting investment in Ukraine. The instability is hurting in the prospects of investment in Ukraine. So my view is that uh, part of the reason why we can't get a deal is that we're talking to the more anti-deal activists in Ukraine. And that if Washington and Berlin and Brussels put pressure and said, look, you guys, you're going to be a lot better off if you cut a deal here. There are some things that you could accept. You could accept a certain degree of decentralization. You could even accept the illegitimate Donbass leadership being the leader of their little Donbass autonomy within Ukraine, right? Is that the end of the world? Probably not, right? If it brings an end to the conflict. Maybe five years, 10 years down the road, there's an election that throws those guys out, right? That ultimately, Ukraine, for its own national interests, has to get on a path to peace here. And the path to peace with Russia looks like you're eating your vegetables. It's not fun. Uh, there will be a degree of decentralization. But the reality is, decentralization is a good thing for Ukraine. Now, confederation is not necessarily a good thing for Ukraine. Sort of, you know, Bosnia is not a good thing for Ukraine. But a higher degree of decentralization, when you have this plural of population, and I think you guys are deluding yourselves that the pluralism within Ukraine is gone. It's not. 
right? I'm not just saying that, you know, we're not exactly where we were five years ago, but it's still a very divided country. And one way that divided countries deal with this is not having such a unified government. Federalism, right? Ukraine could do with some federalism. Wouldn't kill them. Uh, and if that can be part of an arrangement with Russia, uh, that would be okay. And Taras says, well, neutrality didn't work for them in the past. But really, what happened in 2014 was a function of the fact that the Russians believed that the new government in Kiev was not going to be neutral anymore. And they had every reason to think that. They were saying they weren't going to be neutral anymore. They were saying they were going to end the lease on the Black Sea Fleet. They were saying that they were going to go pursue NATO membership. And recently, Poroshenko tried to get this stuff into the Constitution. Right? That's the sort of stuff that splits Ukraine, gets us protracted instability and no settlement. Some kind of arrangement is going to be good for Ukraine's economy. It's going to be good for its stability. It doesn't have to be, you know, including Crimea, as hard as that is to swallow. Now, recently, Oshad Bank won a very, you know, more than a billion dollar settlement for the losses of its assets in Crimea. That could be the way forward. In other words, make the Russians pay. Make them pay for the annexation of Crimea. Right? And that's a good potential outcome. Ukraine needs money. It needs assets. The population of Crimea doesn't really want to be part of Ukraine either. So why not? Right? Just be a little bit pragmatic. Be less concerned about you know, who the victim is and what's right here. And think about the future and what a reasonable deal might look like. And I think we might get a better outcome in this case. And I think that's possible. A sovereign, independent country has the right to make all of the decisions that you have elaborated. Maybe Russia should go after my homeland of Alaska, and we should just sort of shrug our shoulders. I mean, this, that's absurd. Well, you could, usually you can see Russia from your backyard in, <laughs> uh, in Alaska. With, with powerful binoculars. Uh, just on the NATO-EU question. Um, which right, is, is, we're at about 3 o'clock, so we need to wrap right, up. Right. Well, I don't know why, again, we're talking about this being divisive. Uh, there have been two votes in the Ukrainian parliament. One, a general vote, because you, you change the constitution, you have to do it over two sessions. One was the general vote, one was the, the vote to send it to the constitutional court. Um, in the January parliamentary session would be the vote to change the constitution. Both of the votes, two of the three votes that have happened to date, have had 320 votes in favor. You only needed 226 plus. So you've already had constitutional majorities. Yep. I don't know what, why you, again, are throwing this hyperbole out that this was divisive. It wasn't. Um, the, and you may not be aware, the US government has um, a l massive program in support of decentralization in Ukraine, I'm which has aware. been going on for three years. So the idea that you're throwing it out that decentralization will only begin when the deal is done, it's been going on for three years. Yep. OK. Uh, when we do these kind of panels here, we don't aim for consensus. We aim to <laughs> throw light on complex and controversial issues, and I hope that we've succeeded in doing that today. So thank you all for coming, and let's uh, thank our Thanks. speakers. I, I hope I did.